Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. This week, we demand order. It is episode 301 of the Dan and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and yeah, we're going to be talking about The Order Season 2 from Netflix. Just as a reminder, hey, guess what's coming up in 2020? Yeah, Season 2 of The Order. So we're going to be talking to the cast and creators and producers. That happened last year at San Diego Comic-Con, because, but because I knew it wasn't coming out until 20, I wanted to kind of hold on to these and share them when it was a little bit closer. So yes, all these months later, finally going to be sharing my interviews about Season 2 of The Order from Netflix. And I just want to take a quick thank you for making such a huge success of last week's 300th episode. Glad you enjoyed it. Glad you're supporting our sponsors. Thank you so, so much for that. Going to get back to the normal format this week. And yeah, definitely read some comics. Let's talk about them. What we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is writer Christopher Hastings, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Feels great to be dragging out the long box and firing up the tablet. It's time for what we're reading, and I'm going to do something that I normally don't do, and that is review an annual. Can't remember the last time I did that. Detective Comics Annual Number 3 from DC Comics. Peter J. Tomasi writing that. Of course, he's been writing Detective for a bit now. Summit Kumar on the art. Romulo Fajardo Jr. on the colors. Tom Napolitano on the letters. And Steve Rude with an amazing cover for this issue. There's actually a couple stories here. There's a backstory as well written by Tomasi and art by Eduardo Risso also doing the colors. Tom Napolitano doing the letters for that as well. But the main story actually deals with Alfred and something from his MI6 days that has popped back up in modern times that can be made, something can be made right from years ago that Alfred wasn't able to finish. And of course, Alfred can't finish it now because they're Alfred's gone. Alfred is no more. So someone from his past shows up seeking out the Batman to sort of help right a wrong from back in Alfred's life. Now this is not anything that Alfred did wrong. It was something that actually happened to Alfred that he'd hoped to make right, but obviously was never able to do so and you know one of the reasons he ended up having to leave mi6 was because of what happened to thomas and martha wayne so he went and had to go take care of bruce so of course i don't think this is any a spoiler to let you know that yeah he goes ahead and he goes over to the ukraine to try and solve this this issue that has been left over now it's amazing to me how much Bruce has changed in Alfred's death. And, and I think that that's one of the very interesting parts about the stories that are being written, not just by Peter J. Tomasi, but by James Tynan the fourth as well in the regular Batman run. And that we really are seeing a different Bruce Wayne. I mean, this is, there's still, you know, similar ideals are there and everything like that. It's not like we're seeing a complete change in him, but attitude wise, it seems like things are just a little bit different. And this could have done one of two things. It could have pushed Bruce over the deep end or could have given him a bit more of a perspective. And it seems like it's doing the latter. And then it's making him maybe a little bit more compassionate, maybe a little bit more human than he's ever been in a long time. And he wants so much to honor Alfred. And in this issue, we get to see him do that in a very unique and interesting way. Now... It's pretty intense in a couple parts of this issue because, and again, I I like to try and do these spoiler free just in case you haven't had a chance to read it yet. But but there's things get very intense, and I, I, this was one of those things that it could have gone very very differently had Batman not been there. Let me just put it that way. And then to see how everything rounds out, what it ends up being at the end is kind of a celebration of life in a very small way between two people who knew Alfred Pennyworth very, very well. That much I can tell you. And then the backstory is basically 
you get to see, and again, I don't want to spoil this, but it's it's somewhat of an origin story, and, and a very very important one, and it's set to an Alf, a letter that Alfred has written to this person that he knew in MI6 from several several years ago. So that that's a very cool story, and I just really dig the the way that Eduardo Risso drew that backstory as well. It's just there there was something so personal about it. It just made it feel more personal for some reason. And in the main issue as well, I mean, the it, oh, it's just the detail work that the Kamar puts in is is really really excellent, excellent. Especially once we get to the part where they're in the Ukraine, and I just like the way the bat suit is depicted in the beginning of the issue as well, where it where it's basically a Batman being Batman type of moment. But the way that the bat suit and the cowl, especially, is is being presented, it really made me enjoy an annual more than I normally would because usually they're out of continuity and the you know the stories don't typically matter that much. And maybe in the grand scheme of things for what's going to be happening going forward, this one doesn't either, but it just it may it it was a great time to put out an annual and to help honor Alfred the way he should be honored. I know we're going to see more of that coming up in DC and other future issues, but this is one that I really really enjoyed. I'm going to go ahead and give this a four and a half out of five. If you don't normally pick up annuals, but you love Batman, this is one that you'll definitely want to grab because I think you'll enjoy it. Here's another thing that I don't normally do. We don't normally talk about too many books from Oni Press, but we're going to do that this week. How about Backtrack number one, which is written by Brian Joinus and also illustrated by Jake Elfick. Elfick, excuse me, Jake, if I butchered your last name. Doug Garback on the colors, Jim Campbell on the letters, and Marco D'Alfonso with a really neat cover, actually. This is a very interesting premise, and it basically follows a former wheelman named Allison, and she kind of had something go wrong in her previous life. Something went very, very wrong, and she is basically a shell of her former self until someone presents her with an opportunity. Now, I have to give you a little bit of a spoiler here in order to talk about this book. Basically, it is a race that grants the winner a chance to correct a single mistake in their life, but you have to drive through history itself to do it. Now, it's it's initially presented as just a simple, straightforward race, but it ends up not being that at all. It's almost like Hunger Games meets the fast and the furious in a way. If I was to describe this book in any way, it's kind of like that. And, you know, you see participants, you know, kind of, they don't know what they're getting themselves into until they're actually into it. But you see, with the stakes being as high as they are, which you know you're going to get if you do win this race or what you're promised, I should say, then you would if you if you had something just so catastrophic that you needed to change, you could see yourself taking this risk. And this is one one book that really gives the artist an opportunity to really really shine. And I and I think that the Jake Elfix and I hopefully I said that better the second time. I think that the art really does shine once we get into that historical aspect. But but it's it's amazingly detailed in its simplicity in the beginning of the book as well when we're seeing a woman who's genuinely struggling with with not necessarily addiction per se but this soul-crushing loss that she suffers that we don't really we know what it is that she's lost we don't get to see the how or the or the where or anything like that we just know what she's dealing with so, and then you get to see, and, and I love this this Allison character too because she's got a very hard edge on her. She's very, you know, she she takes no prisoners basically in, in that she's very straightforward. She's very tough. She's very rugged and she makes no apologies for it either. And she's not going to let you just skate on by. She's going to make sure that she's in your face and knows everything that's going on and very confident in her abilities as well. She's a character that's very easily likable, even though she's very, very gruff and is basically living quite the hard life in the beginning of this book. But the premise alone to me, this caught my attention and I was not disappointed 
by this first issue. And it kind of barely scratches the surface of what this race can be. And after this first issue, now that the stage is set, you pretty much know that at least the rest of the first run of this book is going to be this race and where they're going to be going and how the hell they're going to be able to find their way out of this. And, how, and you know, there's certain clues that are going to guide them through this race. But I, I got to tell you, this is a very unpredictable and very, very cool storyline that I'm really looking forward to digging into. So because of that reason, I'm going to give this a four out of five only because, you know, the art was maybe a little bit inconsistent in places, but I certainly think there are plenty of opportunities later on in this run for it to shine as well. And there were certainly parts where it did. The cover art is is very, very nice. I mean, really nice by Marco D'Alfonso. This first cover is really cool, so it'll catch your attention. So not quite where Batman was, but just a little bit below that because the premise is just so awesome. And the book is just, it's written really, really well too. So this is one that you'll want to check out as well. Backtrack number one from Oni Press. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. Yep, going to be talking about the final episode of Arrow. We'll fade out next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Joe Denical. I play Ragman on Arrow, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You had to know that Arrow would have some emotional moments, and you had to know that there would be a little bit of fan service, but it all in all ends up being the fade out in the final bow. That is right, is the final episode, the series finale of Arrow has come and gone. Now titled Fade Out on the CW. So I wanted to give a little spoiler-filled recap, just a really, really quick one, and then just talk about my thoughts on the episode and the, the series in general. And really, what this boiled down to, and you and you heard Joe Dinicall talk about this last week in, in our interview, where he said this is still very much an episode of Arrow, and we get to see that, you know, as they're mourning... And we get to see Diggle say, you know, the mission's not over, the mission's not over, and you're trying to figure out what he knows that everybody doesn't. And then all of a sudden, you see that William is kidnapped in present-day Star City from Central City, and they have to figure out who's taken him. Now, it turns out it was somebody that Oliver was going after in Season 1. It was like the, it was kind of like the first guy he doesn't kill on that list. It was, it was John Byrne. And... You get to see he's the one. He's out of prison now. Somehow he only got eight years for human trafficking, those, which I think was, that seems like kind of a light sentence for human trafficking. That is what he was doing, after all. So that was one of the only head-scratching moments of the episode for me. It's like, really, eight years for human trafficking? So he ends up being the one that takes William, and Mia is the one that ends up finding him and is given the same chance to take Burn down that her father got, and she didn't take it, just like he didn't when he had the chance. So that was a moment that that Mia really needed because we we saw earlier in the episode she was struggling with, you know, she she thinks she's already failing at being the Green Arrow in her time because of what happened with William and and the last episode, the, the soft pilot of Green Arrow and the Canaries and how, you know, they were taken. William was taken basically by what looked like the league, and then she gets this moment where she she gets to do basically the same thing that her dad did, make the same decision without knowing the story. But but you see how this this version of Oliver, this older version of Oliver, has influenced her. And then we get to see the media pick up on that and talk about how much of a hero she was. And then Dinah kind of reinforcing reinforcing that for her as well because she had expressed her doubts to her earlier. So that was a really really nice moment. Another nice moment was. When you were trying, I was trying to figure out why Laurel was so upset. And other than the fact that Oliver's gone and everybody's upset, she seemed to be taking it a little harder. And we find out when she runs into dad there, Quentin Lance, who's back, that she wonders why, of all the things Oliver didn't fix, that, that Oliver fixed, why she didn't, why he didn't bring back Earth One Laurel, like his Laurel. If he was going to bring back dad and, 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 and Sarah was going to have maybe her sister, why would he keep this Laurel? Why would he keep Earth 2 Laurel, who she feels like, you know, she's so flawed? And Quentin just looks at her and says, because there was nothing about you that needed fixing. And that tells you not only how far that she's come, but how much she's kind of integrated herself into their lives and just sort of become their laurel right that's that's the thing about this that she didn't realize was that she's a part of this 
and that that's something that she hadn't really fully realized, I don't think, or didn't accept one way or the other. It depends on, you know, your perspective with that. So that was a really nice moment as well. And obviously there are, there are plenty of others when, like when Mia meets Felicity for the first time in the present day where, where Felicity gets to see her daughter all grown up and they have a nice moment together. You get to see the Queen family have a nice moment. Even with Emiko, when she comes back into the fold, and, and she's back and things are different for her. We also know that there's going to be a wedding. There's going to be Roy and Thea are finally together. And we also get to see Oliver and Felicity finally kind of have their forever moment where Felicity does step through that portal with the monitor. And we get to see that she ends up basically at, at the Queen Industries building. And we get to see Oliver getting ready to tell her the story about how when he really saw her. For the first time, and I just thought that that was really, really nice. And I kind of want to start there with my thoughts on on the episode. First of all, I thought it was a very fitting finale. I thought that they did almost everything right. As far as finales go, this is one of the better ones that I've seen of, of any show in a while because they just found a way to end things but still give themselves an episode of the show. We get the closure on the Green Lantern issue with John Diggle. We see him pick up the ring. Now, where that's going to go, I'll talk about maybe a little bit later on here. But we get closure on a lot of things. We get to see the moving forward with Mia and what's going to be Green Arrow and the Canaries. We get to see how, you know, why Dinah moves on. We get to see why Laurel makes the choices that she makes. We get to see that Tommy is back as well. We get these nice moments at the end but it still felt like a good episode of Arrow at the same time. And we get to see, you know, Thea and Roy finally get the get the happy ending chapter in their story as well as Felicity and Oliver. So I thought the episode was very, very well done and checked a lot of boxes for me. But I know some fans still have never really let the whole Olicity thing go. And I hate calling them that because, the, you know, I understand couple names, but it just doesn't feel... Like that, that kind of fits that relationship. I mean, they've had so many ups and downs, and they ultimately ended up together. And what some fans just could not wrap their head around was that Oliver chose Felicity. And I know that in the comics, and I hate saying that out loud because it drives me crazy. In the comics, yes, it's Oliver and Laurel, and that is fine, okay? But Shows are always done differently. We see that movies can be done differently as well. And I understand that when you see Green Arrow, you see Black Canary and you see that connection. I understand that. But Laurel, this isn't even necessarily about Felicity. Whether you like Felicity or not is immaterial. If you didn't like the character, that's fine. And and I could certainly understand why you didn't like the character. I didn't like Felicity at times either. Okay, so I'm I'm there with you in certain aspects, but they they chose each other for a reason. Oliver chose her for a reason. And the and one of the things about Laurel was if you look at Laurel's path, they didn't really work as a couple. They were never going to work as a couple because of 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 who Laurel was and who Oliver was. And to let Laurel forge her own path and not be defined by a relationship with Oliver, I think ultimately was the right call. And I wish more fans would see that in that you're looking at the portrait of a constant relationship that you've seen in the comics. And I, and I understand that maybe the same certain same dynamics existed in the comics that existed in the show. So you're saying, okay, why wouldn't it have worked on the show? Because they didn't want to have Laurel constantly be defined by her relationship with Oliver. Laurel got to be... Katie Cassidy was a friggin' chameleon in the eight seasons of Arrow. She played one kind of Laurel. Then that Laurel became the Black Canary, who then became the Black Siren, who became the Black Canary again, who went from villain to hero who went from reluctant hero to someone who was part of a team and then part of an extended family and, you know, became a daughter 
to to a father who thought he lost his daughter forever and just kind of took her under his wing. These are opportunities that she would not have gotten if she was tied to a relationship with Oliver. We don't get the Black Siren storylines. We don't probably get the death of the Black Canary that we got in season four. We don't get a lot of these things if we tie her to Oliver. And and I understand why fans might have wanted them together, but ultimately look what we ended up getting from Laurel because they were not together. Maybe we would have seen a Laurel that was more like Felicity, which would have robbed us of a rich storyline of the Black Canary. And Felicity, yes, was a, was eventually was ultimately supposed to be a throwaway character for one episode, but if you saw the hitting the bullseye retrospective before that, they just one of the things the producers talked about was they just saw something in those moments together and how different Steven was around Emily and how that chemistry just worked, and they sort of ran with it, and you could see that chemistry shine through in a lot of these scenes, and when things were rocky between Felicity. And Oliver, you felt that. Whereas with Laurel, you always felt that she was kind of strong enough to not really need that. Where, And I'm not saying that Felicity needed Oliver necessarily, but more like they needed each other. But it seemed like, to me like Oliver and Laurel could always exist independently of one another. But ultimately, Oliver and Felicity would always be drawn together. And that's why I actually like that they did this. And they did not make Laurel be defined by that relationship. And they went a different route because, you know, sometimes it's okay to just go a different route. And the CW shows have done this already in the past. And it shouldn't be any surprise that they did it in this particular case. And I'm I'm really glad they did because I thought we got a very rich storyline with Laurel. And I mean, think about it, Oliver with Diggle too. That was another storyline where where, you know, typically it was Oliver and Speedy, right? Whether that be Roy Harper or if that was Thea, it was supposed to be Oliver and Speedy, right? In, in, in Arsenal, that was the story for the Green Arrow in the comics as well. But no, we've got John Diggle, who basically ended up being like a brother to Oliver. And think of what we were able to get from that storyline as well, that deeply emotional bond that they had together. And when things were, were not going well between Oliver and Diggle, it affected Oliver in a major, major way. And and some of the, you know, most uncomfortable and, and hard moments to watch was when they were at odds for me. And I just wanted them to, to have that constant bond, that constant partnership, relationship that they had, because it was just, it's like, it's not something that you see every day between two characters, they were they were partners, they were brothers, and they were leaders together. And and it was just such an amazing eight seasons for them together because that that was the pairing that you saw pretty much the entire time on the show was John Diggle and Oliver Queen. That was a, even when Oliver was in prison, even when we thought Oliver had died, there was that constant presence there between the two of them, and that's why when they said, John, it should be you to speak at the funeral, that was absolutely right. It was absolutely right that it should have been John Diggle. So I just think of all the things that could have gone differently if we'd followed the comics, but but because they didn't religiously follow the comics, we got this different story that we've not gotten in the comics. And isn't that the point? to get a different story, to get a different perspective every now and then. And I think that there's nothing wrong with that. And again, again, this is a CW show. You're going to lean on certain different things because of the target demographic, and you either need to accept that and move on and and understand that this is what you're getting, or you're just going to be pissed off about it the entire time you're watching this show. And then then why would you put yourself through that? I think that this show had many, many great moments over the years – there were also some some misses over the years as well. Not everything hit the mark. You know, I wasn't a huge fan of the Damien Dark storyline that they had. I thought Dark was kind of a weak villain. There were there were some other things, but I don't want to I don't want to bring up all the moments that I didn't like in Arrow and all the moments that I did like because there's certainly more great moments that outweighed the bad moments. And this is a show as a Green Arrow fan, 
I never thought I would get a Green Arrow series, never mind one that was going to be 170 episodes and eight seasons. And whether you ended up loving Arrow or not, you absolutely have to appreciate the fact that this show birthed an entire universe of shows, almost paved the way for comic book superhero television as we know it on any network. You could give at least some credit to Arrow for DC Universe existing and and, and us being able to get Titans and Doom Patrol and and things of that nature, a a season of Swamp Thing. The fact that Matt Ryan had a place to go as John Constantine when NBC decided to unceremoniously cancel that series. The reason that Supergirl was able to move to the CW when CBS just decided they didn't want to do the show anymore. This was all because, at least in part, of Arrow. It was a place to introduce The Flash. And we ended up getting that show. And, you know, it's called the Arrowverse for a reason. And you you appreciate that a little bit more, I think, in retrospect, after you understand everything that this show has done over the past eight seasons. And, and how do you... I mean, it's, you got to be grateful for that, whether you loved Arrow or not, without this show, who knows where we end up with comic book TV series? And, and I would say that the, that Arrow is almost almost like the Iron Man, like Iron Man was to the movies. If Iron Man never happened, where is the MCU? If Arrow never happened, where is comic book television, DC or otherwise? Where is that right now? Hard to say, but I think without Arrow. We're looking at a completely different landscape. And quickly, I I know that Stephen Amell deserves a great amount of thanks, and I know that this has been said a lot, but for me, every interaction I've had with Stephen Amell, this was someone you could tell deeply cared about the story of Oliver Queen, about the character, and that the fans got what they deserved out of this show. And he worked, you could tell, tirelessly in the effort to make sure they put out the best possible show every week. And he was very kind to the fans, to members of the media. He was just a very gracious and hardworking man that I don't think we could have gotten a better choice to play the Green Arrow than Stephen Amell. So I want to thank him for that. Also, John Diggle for his and David Ramsey for his passion as John Diggle and being that perfect, you know, partner for Oliver and and the fact that he was so eloquent in how he talked about the show and talked about Diggle's journey. And again, somebody you could tell really poured his heart and soul into this. And to Katie Cassidy for working her ass off and being and transforming herself so many times when whether it was when she left the show and came back and, and was Black Siren to play a hero, to play a villain, to play everything that I mentioned before. Just incredible what she was able to do with that character. And I can go on and on listing all kinds of different characters and guest stars, but also thanks to Greg Berlanti, Mark Guggenheim, James Bamford, Beth Schwartz, and so many of the Arrow writers and other people behind the scenes for the tireless efforts that they made to put together 170 episodes of a Green Arrow TV series. And Greg Berlanti said this in the Hitting the Bullseye special. He said he always thought the Green Arrow story was a perfect fit for television. And I can't agree more, and I had no idea just how perfect it was. And as somebody who read Green Arrow comics growing up and never expected there to be a series, I am so grateful for the 170 episodes that we were able to get. I'm so grateful for the universe that this show ultimately ended up creating. And I can't wait to see how the legacy gets carried on by these shows that are now left and seeing just how long this Arrowverse can keep up because this is, it's almost like the coaching tree in in sports, right? Where you've got a great coach whose assistant coaches go on to do great things. I can't wait to see what spinoffs and spinoffs of spinoffs we get because of the success and the trail that was blazed by Arrow and everyone that worked on that show.
That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled recap and review of the Arrow series finale. Up next, there is still some nerd news to talk about, so let's do it on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm Magdalene Massaggio, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. From reboots to adaptations, guess what's coming to the movies? It's time for nerd news, and it's been a slow week, actually, for news, but there was some interesting stuff, like this one from Deadline, that reports there's there not there's not one but two Transformers movies possibly in the works. And here's one of the interesting things in that one of them, according to the report, is going to be based on Beast Wars. And this would be from James Vanderbilt, who actually wrote Murder Mystery, if you're familiar with that. Now, I gotta say, animal versions of Transformers, don't you think that that would be really, really cool looking on the big screen in live action. I just think that that could look so, so good. And I mean, that would be great for a younger audience and and for an audience that actually enjoyed that animated series back in the 90s. Now, if anybody went and looked at that and went, oh my God, this looks terrible. You have to keep in mind, that was like, what, almost almost 25 years ago at this point, if you want to think about that. that that's how old that form of animation is. And, and at the time, that was pretty cutting-edge stuff. So I just want to point that out, that if anybody goes back there and looks at, like, how could anybody watch this? We watched that kind of stuff back then because that's what we had. So anybody that, that that's not aware of that, that is why. And but, I mean, you've got Optimus Primal, you know, you've got the, the Gorilla, and you've got Cheetor, I think was another one. I was never a huge uh, person that watched Beast Wars a ton. I was in college at the time, didn't really watch Beast Wars, but I'm fully, fully able to admit that this is a cool idea and a cool concept that could really, really come to life well and almost have like a Transformers meets Jurassic Park type of vibe to it. I know that the Pacific Rim's been brought up as well, but I just think that this would be a step up from from that absolutely 100%. And I mean, I mean, if you're going to do it, do it right, right? If you're going to reboot it and you want to do something different, why not? Just go ahead and do something like Beast Wars. I mean, you're, you've already had a lot of trouble getting interest in the main Transformers franchise movies anyway, and you've had less and less interest with each passing one. Might as well try something different. Now, the second one that's supposedly in development would be from uh, Joby Harold, who did John Wick Chapter 3, and that would be set in the Bumblebee universe. Now, we don't really know how or why or you know what would be involved, if it would be a Bumblebee sequel, but... All I know is is that that movie, certainly the way it ended, it was possible for a sequel. I really enjoyed Bumblebee. Actually, got to watch. I didn't watch it when it first came out. I watched it on a on a plane. I think it was actually back from San Diego Comic Con next past year, and I was really surprised at how much I, I actually enjoyed the Bumblebee movie. I was pleasantly surprised. I was kind of avoiding it because I was worried that I wasn't going to like it, and then I really, really did end up liking it. So if they wanted to do another one of those, bring back Haley Steinfeld and the gang for that movie, I would be absolutely up for that. And I really, really hope that that's something that they consider. If not, if it's just another offshoot of, of something in that universe, I'd be interested to see what direction that they would go and how how far ahead or behind in the timeline that they would go, would go on that. I think it make a lot of difference. I, just, I still am I'm of the mind that we need a Transformers movie without people in it. We just need to either, you know, if you want to do one on Cybertron, that's fine. We need a Transformers movie that doesn't have to rely heavy on humans. And I think that that's actually what's ironic is that's one of the things that made the Bumblebee movie work. It was the first time, I think, since maybe the first Transformers movie that the the use of humans actually made sense in a Transformers movie and actually lent something to the story, but but I still think that at least one of these movies has to have no humans in it. So if I get one out of two, I'm, I'm okay with that. Here's something I'm not particularly okay with, though. This also was reported by, by Deadline as well, if I'm not mistaken. That is the Masters of the Universe. Yes, the Sony's Masters of the Universe movie has been officially pulled from the schedule. So, so now Noah Centino, who's cast as, as He-Man... And Prince Adam, that who knows where that stands right now because the, their movie now has no release date. There's no real reason that was given for this happening. There's nothing saying that's going to be. It's not like canceled completely. It's not done. It's just been removed from the schedule now. Depending on how you look at this, it's good news, bad news because Uncharted, 
The Uncharted movie adaptation is now going to take that release date of March 5th, 2021 that was supposed to be where Masters of the Universe is kind of is kind of put. But, that, I mean, they better get moving, if you think about it, because, I mean, we're, what, into February now. So, or, or at least almost a day away from February as, as of me recording this anyway. They need to get moving. They need to... You don't even have a director yet, as far as I know. I mean, I know Ruben Fleischer, they've been talking about it, but I don't think he's actually been named as director. If you've got less than a year... Basically, less than a year is what you'd have to shoot this, edit it, market it, and get it out there. So I would be very leery of that March 5th date as far as the Uncharted movie is concerned. I'm not sure that they can make that date. Certainly the, the Masters of the Universe movie can't make it because they've been moving even slower. So, And again, that could be another one of those blessing in disguise type of situations where you're going, okay, well, why rush this? Let's take the time, get it right. Hopefully everybody involved will, will still be available when that happens. And I actually think that's one of the reasons that, that, that they went and did this, but from the Uncharted perspective. You have Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg that are attached to this. And I mean, there was already worry about whether or not Holland would be able to stick around because of the whole Spider-Man and Venom thing, how that was going to go. So I know that Sony does not want to lose Tom Holland from this project. So, I mean, maybe you move that up to make sure you can get it in Tom Holland's schedule and still give yourself time for the Masters of the Universe movie. But it's not like we're going to have nothing. We've got that animated series that Netflix is going to do. Kevin Smith has got that anime going on. We'll be fine. Master, I'm a Masters of the Universe fan. I think that, you know, you could do a lot more in animation and in and, and anime on a, on less of a budget. So you can really kind of stretch your wings a little bit when you're doing something like Masters of the Universe in that regard. So I think that they'll be absolutely fine. I think that, that there'll be plenty of fun to be had in the animated world before we get to a live action movie. So I'm going, I'm going to go ahead. I'm willing, I'm willing to wait for this. I'm not in a huge hurry. Here's something that I'm very, very happy about for a couple of wonderful people, and that is Mimetic is going to be adapted to the big screen. According to The Hollywood Reporter, the Boom Studios comic is going to be getting the movie treatment from Lionsgate. And if you don't know about Mimetic, it's, it was actually co-created by James Tynan IV and friend of the show Eric Donovan. So, so happy for Eric. He's such a good dude. Actually, the first panel I ever I ever co-hosted was Eric Donovan was on the panel, and, and I've talked to him several times since then. So, so happy for Eric that this is actually going to get out there and for James Tynan as well. Now, if you don't know, this is actually about like a weaponized meme that kind of sends people into this murderous rage, and we're talking end-of-the-world stuff within the first 72 hours, and, and that, that just really barely scratches the surface of it, and I don't really want to ruin this for anybody that hasn't read it or anything, I don't want to go ahead and you know tell you everything that happens because it's it's pretty it's pretty wild. It's a pretty wild ride. Wild ride. Now Seth Rogen is going to be involved in producing this along with his partners Evan Goldberg and James Weaver and their production company as well. Boom Studios can have Ross Ritchie and Stephen Stephen Christie on board to to oversee the project as well. Now the script is actually going to be written written by Mattson Tomlin who, yes, co-wrote The Batman with Matt Reeves. So, I mean, that's an impressive list behind the scenes to bring that project to life. So, you know, there was a time where things weren't going well for movie adaptations for Boom Studios. Everything was kind of falling apart after the whole 20th Century Fox deal and the 21st Century Fox deal happened with Disney and Disney starts canceling projects. And it's like, well, where does this leave Boom Studios? And since then, they've, they've done pretty well. For themselves, So this is one that, I mean, the good time sloth is the name of the meme. And I think that this, this has potential to be a really, really sleeper hit that not a whole lot of people are expecting. I'm actually glad they're doing this as a movie instead of a TV show as well. Normally I tend to lean and go the other way, especially when you're adapting a comic. But I think this one is going to work so much better as a movie because you've got... They, they kind of had have continuations on this, but it's different types of stories. So you go mimetic, and then I think it's eugenic and cognetic, or you either flip the other two. But those are the those are the stories, and they are different stories after that. So it's almost like you could do different movies out of all of those if you wanted to, and they'd be different stories but set in the same vein of mimetic. It's just a cool idea, and I'm glad that this one 
ended up getting picked up. And I, you know, who knows who's going to be involved beyond that? We don't have a director or any or any cast members yet. This is one that I don't think you necessarily have to have a big name cast for this because I think it's the story that's going to drive things things forward no matter what you do. So, but I mean, I mean, hey, if you can get a big name, get a big name. Just this is something I feel like they you could do this on a smaller budget and still have it come off as absolutely epic just because of how the story is. And I think that that's what's really going to drive things forward. Plus, I mean, Eric Donovan's art is is amazing too and hopefully that gets brought forth in this adaptation as well speaking of seth rogan actually remember he was part of that green hornet movie that was like what 10 years ago maybe 15 years ago at this point it's hard to even remember well green hornet will now be coming back once again and this time according to variety is going to be another movie reboot now amasia entertainment is going to has acquired the rights and co-founders Michael Michael Helfant and Bradley Gallo actually made the announcement. Now, if you if if Helfant's name sounds familiar, he actually spent some time with Marvel Studios back in 2005. Now, I know what you're thinking because it seems like Green Hornet's been done over and over and over again. And it's like, why revisit this? It's just another character that you're trying to refresh that has some name quality, and you know you know who Kato is and all that stuff. And here's what I would do. And and normally. You might, you've heard me say before that, you know, don't do this just to, you know, to, just to try and reboot a project just for the, just for the sake of swapping genders. But I think that this is one of these instances where I think it's time that we have a female Green Hornet, because I think that it is a very cool story that you could tell. And again, if you're going to reboot it, reboot the thing, do something different. We've already had uh, so many male Green Hornets in so many iterations and it's hard to kind of, you know, catch up to the original as far as that's concerned. And, you know, I mean, it's Seth Rogen and I believe it was Jet Li was Kato at the time. I mean, you did the best you could with what you had and it was a little bit of a different type of a Green Hornet story, but why not, you know, you could make it a little bit more serious and go with a, a female Green Hornet and you've got so many amazing options that could, you could choose from as actresses. I mean, depending on what kind of age the Green Hornet of a Green Hornet you want. I mean, you're talking about a character that's been around since the radio dramas of the 1930s and has been male, as far as I've been able to tell, every time. The only time there's been, like, kind of a even a female involved in a high-profile role was in Kevin Smith's Dynamite comic, uh, the Green Hornet comic that they had, where Cato was female. And then shortly after that, that Cato ends up becoming... The Green Hornet, written by Amy Chu in a Dynamite series, so we did have a female Green Hornet in the comics for a little bit. Now, you don't have to necessarily just adapt that story exactly, but at the same time, this is something that, why not do this? Because it just seems like this is one of those things where you're not forcing a a, a gender swap role just for the sake of doing you. You're actually taking a legitimate shot at reviving a character in a franchise of movies that it still could work in 2020 or 20 whenever they would make this. I would assume it wouldn't even potentially come out until like 2022. This is something you could absolutely do and having a female lead would make sense because you are looking to absolutely 100% revive a character that's been done for 90 years. 1930 to 2020, it's 90 years, boys and girls. For 90 years, we've had a man as Green Hornet. Might be time to try something a little different because what you've been doing, trying to revive this character, if you really want to revive it that badly, what you're doing is not working. Try something different. If we've got a female Zorro TV series that's in the works at NBC, which is still in the works as far as I know, we get a female-led Zorro series, this would be a perfect time for a female-led Green Hornet movie as well, and I hope that that is one of the things that gets considered when they go ahead and start making this thing. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, going to be talking to the cast and creators and producers of Netflix's The Order, teasing Season 2 next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Cassia Tellis from The 100, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Sometimes you might need a little reminder of what's to come this year. And one of those things in 2020 from Netflix is going to be The Order Season 2. Now, I wanted to wait 
to share this until a little bit closer to the premiere. We still don't know when that is, but I got to sit down with the cast and the showrunners and producers at San Diego Comic-Con this past year. Let's start things off with Larisa Tronco, who plays Gabrielle. The first question for her was, what can you actually tease for this upcoming season? We do leave off of season one. Um, the werewolves have been powdered, so they've basically lost all of their memory of what has happened. And the Order is trying to figure out a way how to benefit from these powerful werewolves. So that might include like a little bit of recruition. Trying to, there's been like some like attempts and fails at it. So yeah. Next question for Louisa was my question actually, and that was, what was it like to find your out your character will be more than just the you know stereotypical mean girl? You said something in the panel I thought was really interesting about how you didn't know in the beginning where your character was mm -hmm. going to go. How she, you just thought she was a mean girl. Talk about when you first read that first scene. Yeah. When she kind of makes that turn to something more. What was that like for you? It, yeah, well, yeah, I definitely thought she was just kind of like a mean girl. I, I, I did see a little bit that she was smarter than she was letting people know. Like, under this whole, like, I'm not that smart facade, I was like, she's not telling people something. Just from some of the sides that I read in the audition. But the first time I read episode 7, I was like, I was not expecting that. I did not expect, like, sequences of torture scenes. Um, but I was like, this is going to be fun. As much as like that sounds really messed up, I was like, I was so excited to play with that. Um, just for her to step in to more of a powerful uh, stance with that. Yeah. So at one point she ends up saying something about how she thinks the show is mostly a comedy and then someone followed that up with really you think it's a comedy and i just thought her answer was funny so i thought i'd share it with you i well i mean maybe it's just because of my scenes you know what i mean from I'm, your perspective yeah maybe. from my perspective yeah i guess i guess with like Alyssa. yeah i guess that's true but i i i think for, from gabrielle she probably thinks everything's a comedy to her. <laughs> Final question for Larissa Tronco was, who would you like to see Gabrielle interact more in season two? Definitely Alyssa. Like, I d we, we have a few scenes here and there, um, but because we, our characters just wouldn't ever like get along whatsoever so I think they avoid putting us in the room but when they do put us in the room can I swear? I can't swear. No, oh shit hits the fan. You know what I mean? Um, so there's only really like one or two scenes in the first season that really happens and hopefully that happens more in second season. Also Sarah and I are like really really close so we're just like we want to be in scenes together. <laughs> Next to sit down and talk about the Order Season 2 are the ones that maybe would have the most information that's creator and showrunner Dennis Eaton and also creator Shelley Eckstein, who is one of the writers as well. The first question up for them was, what's really the heart of this upcoming season? The heart of this season that I can sort of talk about is it's very much, it's a year of change for everybody. And, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of, their their personal connections and the connections to their uh, secret societies are all coming into question for all of them. Struggling with personal choice and struggling with institutional choice. Yeah. The next question I actually thought was a really good and interesting one, and that was for Dennis and asking him, is there a long-term plan that he has for the show already? I don't have a five-year master plan written out. Not um, for this, anyway. <laughs> well, you're not supposed to talk about the other thing. Okay, right. um, and the, um, you know, because there's so many variables that could come into play at any given minute that would completely render it, you know, moot, and I'm inherently lazy. So that just seemed like a lot of effort for something that I could, like, you know, sort of go, eh, you know what, I'm not going to do this kind of thing. I really, you know, part of the fun for me is getting into the room with the writers, you know, painting ourselves into a corner and then coming up with the fun way to paint ourselves out. Um, you know, and, and I, I think I'd, I'd lose a lot of that sort of, you know, storytelling, uh, you know, jazz, yeah. for a better term, if, if we had some, like, five-year master plan. And, and you never know, too, like, what other people are going to bring to you. Just, like, what we'll see develop with an actor on stage can have an influence on where we might want to go in the next season. My question for Dennis Heaton and Shelley 
Erickson was actually one that I shared with you during my coverage of San Diego Comic-Con several shows ago, but I wanted to repeat it here in case you missed it, and that is that, is there a plan to kind of expand into more creatures at some point this season on the show? So we've got magic, we've got werewolves, we've yep. seen golems on the show. Yep. Is there any plan to maybe expand beyond that with other kinds of maybe creatures or characters? Do you kind of feel like the show is set well the way it is now? Oh, um, that's a great question. Uh, there's definitely there's definitely other creatures uh, coming um, this season and you know down the road. My only my only mandate with uh, creatures in this world is they all have to derive out of magic. Um, you know, because I, you know, for me, it's like when I see other paranormal shows and it's like they have, you know, they have, you know, magic and religion and then they've got like, you know, Bigfoot and aliens. It, 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 it's almost like you start to get competing paranormal theories at play and, and I start to fall into, well, how can you have that if you're also, right. you know, having this in the world? So for me, as long as, as long as it's a creature that we can say it's created by magic, um, we, we can show it. And that's why, you know, for me it was like, that's why we'll do a golem, but we wouldn't do a Frankenstein's monster. Now, if we discovered that the Himalayans practice a certain, you know, type of magic, and that's how a Yeti came about, yeah. who knows? All right. Yeah. All right. yeah. No, we'll we'll find a way to write it in. <laughs> but that's just that's just what it, you know. That's just our sort of one rule is magic has to have created it. So you know, you know, it's it's kind of like you know, will there be vampires in this show? Probably not, because I don't think vampires are created magically. Right. Right. So. And they don't glitter. So. No. <laughs> Next to sit down was the lovely Sarah Gray, who plays Alyssa on The Order. And the first question for her, I mean, it had to be simple, right? What did you think of the season one finale? I was with everyone else. I know a lot of people are upset about this. And I was too. <laughs> um, it was hard. But I understand, like, when I really looked into it, Alyssa was put in a really hard position. And it was a matter of saving this person that she loves from dying um, along with the other wolves so I understand why she had to do what she did and I don't know who knows at least he's not dead there there's opportunity it's a crazy world so I'm hoping that it, they can reconnect it somehow my question for Sarah Gray was, you know, coming up in season two, where do you think that Alyssa stands in the order right now? Where do you, where do you think she stands in the order right now? There's talk of a new Grand Megas. It's not like her and Vera have always gotten along. So where do you think, beginning in season two, she kind of stands in the order? Uh, well, at the end of season one, she was promoted. So instead of Medicum, she's up to Meg Stratus, which is great and she's happy about. Uh, I'm hoping that in season two, she can move up even further because I think she deserves it and I think her moral compass um, is so pure and so great. She ha she does have a lot of heart and I think that's important with uh, people who love, have a lot of power and so yeah, I think she deserves to move up in the Order definitely. This is one question that I'm sure all fans of the Order had so I'm glad that somebody asked Sarah Gray this. Are we going to see new powers and new spells potentially coming up this season. Definitely. I feel like new spells are always popping up. I think that's the great thing about magic is it's so open-ended. You could do so many different things with magic. Um, so, yeah, I think we're definitely going to be seeing some new spells. Now, if you remember the season one finale, you know what happened with her using the powder and the, you know, the werewolves losing their memory and all that. The final question for Sarah Gray was, is that something that you think is going to haunt her throughout this upcoming season? I think that's going to be an ongoing guilt that she has, and I think it's going to be a struggle because, you know, she might see Jack, and she's going to have to deal with the fact that, yeah, she took their memory away, but... Yeah, at the end of the day, I think she knows that's what she had to do. So I don't think it'll be too much of a struggle, but I think it's just, it's definitely going to be a sore spot that she's going to have to live with. Um, 
it's just kind of like losing someone that you love. It's it's part of life. Yeah. Next up, talking about the order with Hamish himself, Thomas Elms, actually one of my favorite characters on the show from season one. And the first and what ended up being like the only question for him was, what's one of the things that you liked about being a part of this show? And then he just goes on this massive rant with so much good stuff. Listen for yourself. What's very cool, I think, about this universe is there's so much uh, ancient history to it. There's so much, like, a feeling of antiquity. Like, like this struggle between, you know, the Order and the werewolves who are sort of there to sort of regulate the magic. Not necessarily stop the magic, but kind of, like he says, uh, I think in episode three or four, it's like, we're the cops. We're like magic cops, you know? We go out, we bust some skulls, and, you know, we're not exactly the good guys here. But just the potential, and it felt like in season one we kind of just scratched the surface of it. Like there's this giant ocean that we could potentially dive into with the history. I mean, what was it like back in, you know, the Middle Ages when the knights were running around and the order were up to their thing, you know, or the Renaissance or, you know, the Industrial Revolution. You can imagine there was some kind of crazy, you know, I mean, that in itself would be a series. And so I'm really excited for us to hit the ground running with season two. Um, the world is established, the characters are all established, we're going to go deeper in the, in, the, in the history of the characters, hopefully the history of the universe, um, and what I think is very cool, for about half of the show in season one, it felt like um, there were these two worlds, the Knight's world and the Order world, and they were very much distinct from each other and kind of isolated from each other. We operated in secrecy, so did they. We weren't exactly aware of each other's presence now. I mean, we've been magically, um, you know, whatever, the men and black flash thing which you know seems to only be like a temporary solution to things it's not a permanent fix so I'm gonna be very curious I'd be surprised if we weren't aware of each other's existences and I think from day one if that's the truth then the potential to get into some really interesting conflict storytelling different relationships um, I loved I, I'm so incredibly grateful for my cast because they like I come, I, I come from a theater background, and I'm incredibly thankful for all my training and everything that and where it's gotten me. But I was pretty damn nervous. I'd never done eight episodes uh, as far as a character arc before, and I'm not gonna lie, I was pretty nervous, pretty tense. You know, um, he's kind of a reserved guy too, so there's a danger there, and you know, you play it a little too stoic, a little too cold, and there's not really too much going on. But just to have uh, actors like Devery and Jake. And and Adam there, who are making these big choices. They're making bold choices. They're coming up to the writers and they'll go, hey, hey, what do you, I'm gonna do it this way, but what do you think if I do it this way the next time? And about halfway through filming the show, it was like I just took a breath, you know? And I went, oh my gosh, like, and I think I found some of my own Thomasness and was able to bring that to the table. Had a little bit, started to have fun with the character, started to take the pressure off of do the good acting, you know, do the right acting, do it, do it good, and more into the realm of like the exploration and failure and not, not afraid to make choices that don't. I remember there was this great moment where we throw Jack in the basement and we're trying to figure out whether to kill him or not. And um, we were having some drinks and whatever and we walk into the room after making our decision and and Shelly, one of the writers, goes on the second take, she goes, all right, that's awesome, it's good, good, good. I need you drunker, all right? I need you to turn up the drunk. Uh, and I go, um, here's what I think about Hamish and his drinking. I, say, I go, I think he only appears drunk. You know, because he's always behind the bar, he's always mixing the drinks, he's always in control of the flow of the liquor, and he's always winning the drinking games. So if you're good at drinking games, generally you don't get that drunk, you know what I mean? The purpose is to get the other guy drunk. So I had this whole theory that really it's more of a control thing. You know, he likes to control the alcohol because he likes to control the, the room. He likes to control the situation, and if he's in control of the situation, people don't die. And I think that's what he's really afraid of, is losing someone else that he cares about. So I go, I give her this whole thing, and I'm very proud of myself, you know, in this moment. And Shelly goes, hmm, that's not the character we're writing. <laughs> so, which, you know, to be honest, doesn't really change much in terms of the performance. You know, you just, you take the note and you do it. You turn up the drunk a little bit. It's like a thermostat. You just kind of, you go, okay, this, you want a little bit more of that? No problem. You dial it up. Um, but to just feel like I had a responsibility to bring something to the table was an incredible feeling. And then... Um, the learning, the learning experience of 
you can't be too precious about these ideas at the same time. You need to be willing to be like, you know, if it doesn't work in that moment, it's no, no problem, no problem. But you, there is a responsibility, I think, in terms of you got to be the expert on this particular guy. And if you're not, you don't deserve to do it. And we follow that up by talking to a couple of producers from the show, Chad Oaks and Mike Fryslev. And the first question for those guys was, did you change anything about the show based on the reaction to certain moments in certain episodes, you know, data and stuff like that? Our partners, Netflix, has this, you know, giant conglomerate of, of, of people and, and, and people that review the bloggers and, and find out what worked, what didn't work. And, you know, they can they can tell how many people watched the first or second or third. What episode did we, you know, lose people and, and why? So they come back, Chris Regina and their team comes back with with, with some, some some empirical data that's actually important uh, to say, you know what, this worked, this didn't, this character didn't, uh, this everybody loves this character or this relationship. So, so yeah, so we, we take the input. I mean, our our job is to you know entertain, and we want to make sure it's our audience. We're slaves for the audience, and, and even what territories? Like you know, if we did well in Brazil, let's say we might you know pay a, a little homage in some of the material to certain territories where we. We've done particularly well. So. One of the things that came up a lot while we were talking about the order at San Diego Comic-Con last year was that, you know, the show mixes different genres. So my questions for the guys was, was that kind of always the intent going in? You talk about picking your genre, but it seems like you sort of juggle a lot in the show. You've got horror, you've got drama, you've got comedy. Was that the intent going in, or was that like a product of what you got from the writer's room? No, that was the, the intention right from the get-go, is to have a little bit of everything in there. And it was, we could have added musical, we could have added period. But you still could. <laughs> yeah. There might be a singing episode. Jazz hands. Um, yeah. We find that uh, for horror, too, like if there's a comedy offset, it tends to work better, too. So. We definitely got to end things on a fun note, talking about the order at Comic-Con this past year with Adam DeMarco, who plays Randall on the show. First question for him, I thought it was an interesting one, and that is, which episode do you feel like defines your character? Listen to what he says. I would probably say episode three. It's the episode where you first actually meet the wolves. I mean, the first two episodes, um, you don't even know for sure if my character, what if he is a werewolf yet or something. I think they're teasing that he's like a killer, but that wasn't true. But uh, episode three, I think the show really opens up. You know, it opens the store to a whole other subplots. Um, and I think the werewolf stuff in there is really fun, you know, introduce Jake, like a naked Jake, Jack, I don't know which one sometimes. <laughs> the three definitely defines my character and his, and, his, and his motivations, why he's trying to um, essentially help Jack, you know, by into turning him into a superhero, like Randall, and like isn't this fun, he doesn't realize he's creating a lot of problems for this guy, he just is trying to avenge his mother's death. Wrapping things up with my final question to Adam DeMarco, and that was, do you kind of hope to get back to the whole Randall and Lilith relationship at some point in season two? So we kind of got to see something start up between Randall and Lilith, and then just I know. as it starts, you get the rug pulled out from under your right. eye. Do you hope to kind of get back to that at some point in season two? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, these, these two characters kind of realized they had feelings for each other pretty late in the season, Randall and Lilith, and um, I think it'd be nice to explore that more, um, that relationship more. I love working with Devery, and um, I think the character dynamic is really funny. Like, Lilith uh, definitely wears the pants in the relationship. <laughs> If there was a relationship, but uh, I think, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see since we don't have our memories, like if we still have a connection, maybe. So. If you hadn't gotten a chance to watch The Order on Netflix Season 1 yet, it, it's a really interesting show about magic, and yet it does take place at a school for magic, and there's secret societies and all these different elements at play here, there's a love story, there's plenty of comedy involved, there's camaraderie, there's just so much to like about this show, and and especially, you know, if you like some of the shows on the CW, I think you'll really dig the order, so if you haven't gotten a chance to give it a watch yet, definitely do that, because season one is available now on Netflix, season two, we don't have a release date for it yet, season one came out in March, so I'm just saying that you might want to look out for March, I know that according to the Twitter page, 
for 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 the showrunner Dennis Heaton saying that they've wrapped principal photography in November, so there's a chance that we could see the show in my but we'll keep you posted on any release dates for the show. But season two of the order is going to be coming to Netflix. It'll be very interesting because it picks up right where season one left off. And yeah, that was kind of a pretty big cliffhanger that I'm not going to give you too much of a spoiler about at this point. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the down and nerdy podcast. Again, thanks to the folks at Netflix and everyone to do with the order to let me, you know, hang out during San Diego Comic-Con last year. If you want more information on us and where, you know, I keep an eye out for that release date for the order season two, you'll probably find it down in nerdypodcast.com. Also keep checking our social media pages at down and nerdy seven five seven on Twitter, on Instagram and facebook.com slash down and nerdy as well. Remember you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds.